Hey, Dunkerpunks. When was the last time you flipped open your Bible to the parable of the Good Samaritan? It is such a famous story, and it's talked about so often in church circles, in sermons, in small groups, that when I'm looking for scripture to refresh my spirit, I tend to skip over that section of Luke. I feel like I could easily sum up the story of the Good Samaritan. It's an inclusive and a beautiful story about our call to action as Christians and how loving God with our heart and our soul and our mind isn't really enough. We have to also love our neighbors as ourselves, and that includes all neighbors. But recently, I opened up to that story and I reread it in Luke chapter 10. And I thought to myself, um, how many times a day can I claim to be the Good Samaritan versus how many times in a day am I like the priest or the Levite who goes around the issues that pop up in my It was the first time I thought about myself in a different frame of mind when reading that story. Typically, I think of myself as trying to be the Good Samaritan, but asking myself that question, I realized that the Levite and the priest in me outweighs the Good Samaritan on average. On a day-to-day basis, when an issue or an obstacle pops up in my path, something that I could take some time to resolve, something that would make my community or my environment better off, I tend to try to find a way around it or avoid it. I would encourage you to think as you listen to this episode, how often do you find yourself acting as the Good Samaritan in your day-to-day, you know, facing the issues around you directly, no matter how inconvenient they may be to your schedule that day, and how often do you find yourself being the priest or the Levite and trying to find a way around inconvenient things? Today's episode is part of a current Dunker Punks podcast series, interviewing seasoned ministers uh, and asking them about their hopes for the future. In today's episode, you will hear from Alex McBride, who is interviewing Grace Mishler, a member of Creekside Church of the Brethren in Elkhart. Thank you, Grace, uh, for sitting down with me today uh, for the Dunker Punks podcast. As you know, our theme right now is uh, is looking at hopes for future ministries. And um, I wanted to talk to you today about just learning more about what you've done in Vietnam is really, really impressive. So thank you again for coming and sitting down with us. My first question for you, what is the Vietnam Eye Project? You know, what kind of work do they do? And what led you to wanting to work for them for so many years? Well, it, it really was a 
organic approach to getting involved with the Ho Chi Minh City Children's Hospital One uh, I unit because it has a history, uh, my history that I had with people with blindness, working with students at the National Vietnam University of Social Sciences and Humanities mm -hmm. in Ho Chi Minh City. And um, uh, we had 13 students that were blind coming to the university and no infrastructure. Mm. Luckily, I was involved with the local grassroots community, which does uh, helps with adaptive devices that blind people can use. And I also was familiar with uh, group home settings uh, run by the Catholics, although I did get involved too with the Government Institution for the Blind School in Ho Chi Minh City. And um, uh, I saw a need among the students. They, when I did individual case studies, they uh, expressed that, you know, that they really didn't know what their, their diagnosis was. Um, they didn't uh, have the necessary treatment. And one particular case was saying, well, Ms. Grace, I, when I was three years old, I could see. But after three years old, I could not see. I went blind. And my mother said that it's because they didn't have transportation and uh, access to good treatment. Mm. And these were poor families. Uh, so one day, uh, uh, I, well, I took these students, 13 of them, to the American Eye Center in South Saigon and um, had them be tested by Dr. Pham. She's a Vietnamese-American doctor to see the accuracy of what they knew about their eyes. And lo and behold, some of the students, we were able to get better glasses. Some of the students, uh, we were, you know, uh, one, one particular uh, uh, kid, uh, he was, uh, I think, 16, who, uh, his name was Fee, and he needed a cornea transplant. So I was able to connect in Pennsylvania with the Church of the Brethren uh, and, and the people that we coordinated with was the um, Houstons that lived in, uh, uh, in the E-Town e area. And anyhow, they, the, their, the Bible school class raised uh, 1500 mm. mm -hmm. for a fee to get a cornea transplant. Would you believe Cool. his cornea transplant was done up in Hanoi mm -hmm. and he got the transplant eye from America, and it was a good eye, and he now sees in one eye. Ah. So Fee, who, when he came to the group, the blind school in Ho Chi Minh City, he had not gone to school. And this is very typical in Vietnam that the children are isolated and they don't have opportunities or know about blind schools and that means if they go to a blind school, they'd have to leave their parents to go to the blind school. Sophie came and he had not been in school for 12 years. And he went 
and graduated age 25. Mm -hmm. And Fee now is the legal guardians at this group home for the blind. Mm. And it's just really impressive. But in the meantime, as I was bringing these students in, doing case management, managing each case, do it, you know, open up and find out what their needs are, and then intersect that with the university. Now, we were able to problem solve issues related to uh, uh, the getting students to get scanned in time, their documents, because they, they can't, they don't have access. If you have a book, you have to scan it into the computer. So we worked at that to get it done quicker. One day, Dr. Pham at the American Eye Center said, Grace, 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 we need your help. Would you please help us and case manage it and do casework with this family because baby was is gonna go blind in 10 days. Wow. So I met with them. Now, mind you, we're, the, the family was very poor. They, they went to eight different places throughout, throughout Vietnam and everybody says, oh, go to Singapore. Well, they couldn't go to Singapore because they, they couldn't afford it. Well, somehow they found out about the American Center in South Saigon. So as I opened the case, you know, you have to understand that there was no surgical floor available, uh, uh, no surgical floor, nor no Vietnamese doctor who really has the skills to do it. So we had to do it at the French International Hospital and Dr. Ferrerda, who's from Holland, he, he, he ended up doing the surgery for this baby Hua because she was at stage four, 4A. And if you get to stage 4A and 4B, problems. Mm -hmm. You know, that needs, you, 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 you gotta do surgery right away or, or mm -hmm. the kid's gonna be blind. Right. Okay, so behind the scene, it cost $7,000. They didn't have it, but there were people that were expat community and students raised funds to help Baby Hua. Mm -hmm. Well, the news got around among the people who's found out, oh, we want to have the same thing happen to us you know, when, you know, when there's problems with a preterm baby that needs intervention. Dr. Doctor, uh, uh, linked me up to the Children's Hospital one and I met with the medical staff and found out that they have problems. Because hmm. in the eye unit right now, uh, in a given day there's about 60 families that come in, because they have to have multiple visits, come in that have a rope, retinal pathology of premature babies. And four doctors, and there's more cases beyond just rope. So in a day, they might have 190 patients to see out of four doctors. So what happened was, a lot of times parents would come in uh, and their baby's already blind. And so the doctor would look at it and says, your baby's blind. Well, they go home quietly and no follow-up, no nothing, you know what I mean? They welcomed an initiative for, for social work so support services mm -hmm. because 
uh, uh, to do case management. And so when they have the surgeries, that means you gotta follow them up till they're five, six, seven years old, and they have to wear contact lens as a baby, so you have to teach parents how to put contacts in, mm -hmm. or they have to have little glasses and all that to put on them, and then, then have the lens implant. It was approved, the initiative. It, took, it was in October 2016 where that I met with them, and it wasn't until that summer of 2017 that we implemented. And we used uh, money from the Church of the Brethren, $5,000, uh, and we used $5,000 from, uh, no, no, it was 2,500, sorry. And the other one, 2,500, was from Ben Harvey of Taipei, our fellow men alliance. So we started it. There's things that we started to do intake and here now, fast forward, we're in 2023, we have already had intakes of 5,300 babies that had rope. Out of that 5,000, we have 80 in continuing care that we have to follow for a length of time. And we're very fortunate to have the Murray Foundation. Murray Foundation, uh, Ross Murray, was in Vietnam. He had a, a business and he heard about me through Dr. Pham at the American Eye Center. And so we um, uh, ended up, um, he, he, he was impressed. And so now since, since uh, about 2018, so it'd be four, going on five years, mm -hmm. uh, he, they have been sponsoring it. And we have two social workers. Uh, one social worker is there full-time there at the uh, eye unit every day, helping out the doctors, nurses, uh, doing photo, you know, helping with making sure babies have their photo imaging of their eyes and coordinate self-help group. We started a self-help group, which is a new concept at the hospital, but uh, uh, we have that with the parents so they can learn about rope and interact with each other and they, have, they can be on Facebook and all that type of things. That was my, bef before I left Vietnam in 2019, April 3rd, 2019. The program was going run by two social workers. I have a project manager. And so they coordinate things from, you have to travel through the city and the, and, and the poor families come in from the mountains or Mekong Delta. Uh, and uh, we screen them that they're, they have to be poor and we make sure that they have money for transportation, that, that they can come and that when they come, if, they're, if they need housing, we make sure there's some accommodations going on and um, uh, follow the families uh, and they have to make multiple visits and they come to the European Eye Center because Dr. Ferreira wants to see what's kind of going on. So it's, it's been, it's pretty structured program activities, but we're gonna do a new program. Since I was in Vietnam recently, it was in November, November through for one month, and in, in, um, in Vietnam, all of a sudden I heard just, just before, it was in December, when I got back, there was a baby blind from Yilin. I said, wow, okay. I says, I want us to go to Yilin because that's where Ted Studebaker was based 
Church of the Brethren was based in that area. We now have a, a network uh, with a blind, a blind leader who is my close friend that I've known for 20 years. Uh, he is going to go, and they're going to meet with some of the church, church people. I hope they can connect with some people that might know Ted. Uh, but we want to see one of the concerns I have, and that this is a new area. I, I'm alerting uh, the, the uh, staff to pay attention. Our kids are getting to be five, six, seven years old, and that's the time school. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling in Yilin, I'm going to be curious. I have a feeling there's, there's blind kids there because the parents, with that story, with that, happened in that case, the baby was born low weight and needed to be in the hospital for three months, respiratory. The baby was discharged, but the doctor didn't say anything about the eyes. Then maybe two months later, they came back into the hospital for pulmonary circulation and the doctor says, he's got, the baby's got problem with, with the eyes. You need to get into Ho Chi Minh City. And they didn't have money, so they couldn't go. So that's the same story I heard way back when I first arrived among the students. And I go, okay. Finally, the, the parents made contact with a Catholic nun, and uh, she ended up giving them money, and they came into the city. And so that's how that story goes. What's important is, A, we're going into new territory. We already went into... Daklak. Daklak is, 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 these are ethnic minorities that often are marginalized by the country because of history related to the war. We went, we had maybe three years ago gone to the remote area along with our medical doctor and the social workers, met with the hospital, presented our support services, and in the meantime, the doctors found out about it and they said, hey, we need training to know how to really diagnose retinal pathology prematurity. So they uh, ended up um, coming into Ho Chi Minh City. They have a program now. Doctors from the rural areas can come in and get training uh, for three months at our IE unit. And uh, we um, inter helped to get that going too. Mm -hmm. And to tell them about the social work support services. Really, my life began in Vietnam. It began in 2000, September 2000. I arrived in Vietnam, and we, it was a joint partnership between the Church of the Brethren and Eastern Mennonite Mission. And there we needed somebody with a master's degree in social work to come teach English social work in the Department of Sociology. So uh, I, I went there, and um, took language. It, was, it wasn't as intense as I look back, I wish I would have had, uh, you know, like a, more hours in the day than just one hour, two hours in the classroom and that's it. And then you try to go and find other opportunities to, to learn the language and, and so anyhow. Uh, but I, they wanted to use, they at, put pressure on me to do a project initiative with the Department of Sociology for a class of uh, third year sociology students. And 
I had already established out in the community, I did volunteer work with Pearlbach Foundation Inclusive Education. And so I got, I, I went to that initiative that they had in the school in Coochie. And that experience led to um, where I became aware, wow, it's the people with disabilities who are the trainers and the instructors, you know? And so a lot of them had knew some English too. They, oh yeah. They were blind, uh, hearing impaired, um, and physical impairment. Uh, but at this point, we were focusing on the blind blindness. And uh, so anyhow, they invited me then to go to Asia Pacific conferences in Ho Chi Minh City, and sometimes making a trip to Hanoi uh, to uh, leadership training because they had, in Vietnam, I think it's really awesome because they have self-help groups in each province. And, uh, and they, they um, really are, are very resourceful. Mm -hmm. Out of that experience, the dean said, um, Miss Grace, uh, you know what? Do a project initiative and just bring in your grassroots people that you know mm -hmm. to help you. We have no skills. We are an expert in social work and we're not experts in, in, in um, uh, disabilities. So that's what I did. And I was told 169 students and they want to field practice too. Mm -hmm. Now, my country director from Eastern Mennonite Mission said, Grace, you're crazy to do 169 students field work. Well, I did it. Mm -hmm. The way you did it is the Vietnamese. And it's a good thing in a way I didn't know the language because they came around my kitchen table. I had a big table and we mapped out the course study. It was a 10 week training class. And how are you gonna divide? How are you gonna divide the group up 169 students? Well, I thought of a formula. The Vietnamese taught me this. <laughs> um, I knew enough of the government that they didn't like house churches. If, you, if there's people that congregated around 10 to 12 people, They'll, they will check that out, what that's all about. So what I did is I divided it into 17 resource group leaders because by that time I knew who the leaders were because I was around the leaders and then they went and get the leaders. You know, we had, you know, uh, the hearing impaired school, uh, the Down syndrome school, uh, which was a mentally challenging. And then we had um, uh, hearing impaired blindness uh, and then also a governmental official uh, who became my friend. Uh, we had a Buddhist Buddhist monk. He he was uh, showing. We went we went to the park with the students, and we blindfolded the students to do cane training, or students sitting in a wheelchair and try to get around. You know. So anyhow, that that um, course study ten week was. Uh, it took a lot of energy, 
to, to do it. And uh, uh, our first class, he was upstairs and it was 76 steps upstairs. And our speakers are persons like Trum Van Trum from the YMCA, that he had to be on a wheel, he was in the wheelchair. So how are you gonna get Trum up? So down, down the stairs, first floor, we had people train how do you take people up the stairs. And that was the beginning of social awareness of people with disability, social work support services. Mm -hmm. So I was modeling that type of practice. And so anyhow, um, that class, uh, you know, we, we became close as a team doing that. And it was great because they, you got to see the Catholics, the communists, the ancestor worshipers, the, the, um, the NGOs together. And they had one thing in common, disabilities. That was my beginning and I and networking. You were in Vietnam for a long time. I started September 2000, seconded, Church of Brethren was seconded to Eastern Mennonite Mission. Mm -hmm. In 2005, I came back because Eastern Mennonite Mission was going to do church development. And my I was a mission worker. And so there was a gap um, where I, one year later, the Vietnamese disabled people are saying, Grace, we need you back here. Mm -hmm. You can help link things with Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City with the self-help groups. Because there, there was a lot of issues going on among the self-help groups um, for the disabled people. And, and so I went back for a year and a half and did some research. Um, and then I came back and <laughs> there was an interim. Murkini uh, left and then we had a Mary Jo story. And she says, um, Mary, Mary Jo story supported for me to re-enter Vietnam. And so from 2009, I think, 2008, 2009, I went back with the Church of the Brethren. I like to say my attention with Vietnam has been 19 years, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. You know, and I, I used my professional skills as a social worker. Mm -hmm. And the, the first initiative with the, the joint with Eastern Mennonite Mission was Healing the Wounds of War. Mm -hmm. And then I continued with focusing on the uh, blind communities and other disabilities. And then later, my emphasis, it was infant blindness, mm -hmm. uh, social work support services. And it still operates today. And we are right now hoping to raise $600 to um, send uh, the Tron Button, the blind leader, and then our two, two social workers to Yilin. And I'd like to see that to be, if we could develop a sort of a working model with how you, we only, not only help with the eye issues, but the education mm -hmm. for the blind. 
and our, my, the two workers, I, we're, we're linking them up to the Blind Association. That'd be like our National Federation for Blindness, a, a local chapter is in that area where Yilin is. And how can we get them more connected with the families? That's the next one. And Yilin, I want to see that as a working model. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna do that to honor my for, former uh, class. No, he was a little bit older. Ted Studebaker was older, but I was at Manchester when Ted was there. You were mentioning like, a, so you initially went for like working with social work. Like when did you know like you felt called to kind of work more with helping like with blindness in like a lot of children suffering with, or mm -hmm. you know struggling with blindness in rural communities? What kind of help? Um, was there like a calling or was there kind of feeling that led you to that kind of ministry? Well, when I was at University of Illinois, 1988, master's degree of social work, and the dean was saying, you social workers, listen social workers, we need to think more international. Mm -hmm. Get a scope from the international scene. One day, I was walking in the hallway and Dean Sanders says, Grace, we think you have the leadership. We had uh, opportunity, our university to go to Taipei and establish social work. And you, we would like to have you help establish the social work department. Well, at that time, my husband uh, did not feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. um, that was interesting, that part. Okay, but 12 years later, in 1988 to 12 years later, I ended up in Vietnam. Now, what did I do? I turned 50 years old. And I always learned, when you have your birthdays, take charge of your birthdays. Mm -hmm. So on my 50th birthday, I got on the airplane and went to India because my brother Jerry was meeting me in India because he's done some work in India. And so I ended up going there and I felt the calling when I came back, I checked with the Church of the Brethren and the Mennonites to see if they had anything in India, but they did not. But I put my application in mm -hmm. and, and the Mennonite, it circulated into Eastern Mennonite Mission and lo and behold, they had MSW available position in Vietnam. So when I went the second time, because I wanted to test God, if this is with me, I had limited eyesight. I was seeing much better, seeing colors, reading, you know, getting around okay, but I still needed my cane. And I wanted to try to go to India by myself. And I had links to when I went to India. And then the Eastern Mennonite Mission asked me if I would stop in Ho Chi Minh City mm -hmm. to meet with Jerry Keenard of Eastern Mennonite Mission and uh, to meet with the Dean at National Vietnam University. And they reviewed my credentials and my, you know, and they invited me to come. Well, that was an interesting experience to do that because when I, uh, I talked to, um, at that time, the Church of the Brethren, Merv Keeney, uh, and he said that 
In order to start a new initiative, like in Vietnam, we have to um, have at least two districts of the Church of the Brethren approve that new initiative of mission. Mm -hmm. And so that meant I had to do traveling. So I, I traveled on the train out to Kansas and I went to E-Town area, you know, and I checked, you know, Indiana, you know, get, just getting, raising awareness and seeing people and, and then all came through um, and it ended up to be seconded. Now, <clears throat> I do remember, uh, I have graduated from the Mennonite Seminary, and so I remember being with a prayer warrior at the seminary, and I says, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to go to Vietnam. I want, I want, I want to have it that it's not just Mennonite Church Brethren, because some of my, I, my, I grew up Church of the Brethren Union Center. Then for my, some of my twenties, thirties, forty eight, I was with the General Conference, General Conference Mennonite more. So I had these two worlds. And my mom was a Mennonite, my dad was a church brother, and my grandma was a Mennonite, my grandpa was it. <laughs> so it was like, that That to me was important, and here it happened, we, uh, Church of the Brothers seconded it. And so uh, I went there, it was for five years, and, and I was based at National Vietnam University, and my assignment was English teaching with faculty members on social work, because uh, they had not, um, social work, they didn't have it in, as a discipline yet, but it was emerging. I think what helped, and that's where I say these are God's eyes, what helped was that had I not had my disability with my eyesight, I, pr I probably been totally in a whole different level of, of, of social work. I have no idea, right. but it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Disabilities, hello, duh. Yeah. It was the war. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, my friend Ba Chin, who, uh, he was a student at the university and they went to the beach as students and they were going to make something for supper and, and they lit something up and boom, was Ooh. a land, landmine hit him and blinded him. Mm. The low vision, I think, helped me to get around. Mm -hmm. And my thing is, I was in a, you know, like, um, I, I knew at the university, you can't talk about, I mean, I just, I did my work as a social worker, but to try to say, oh, I want to save a person, let them know about Jesus and da 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 da, uh, you can get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was more important you know, like I had, I had, I had people say, you know, Miss Grace, you know, we waited 20 years, 20 years for somebody to come like you, Grace, struggle with us and love us and be with us. And then they, students would ask, but who will you do? Will you do likewise? The people that sent you, will they send them to Iraq? Will they send them to Afghanistan? You know? Right. That was powerful, clever, uh, and right on. Mm -hmm. Students, donker punks.
hey, guess what? In Vietnam, they just started Peace Corps mm. in Vietnam. Oh, cool. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, at first I was like, oh, are they the CIA? No. <laughs> you know, so that's an opportunity to, to, to do that. Uh, one thing I know is um, when I hear among people that work internationally, like at the U.S. consulate, they know of the brethren, mm-hmm. and they say they work quietly behind the scenes. Yep. You know, and that, that's what our presence is. Thank you, Grace. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Grace lived in Illinois and had a career in social work for several years. And in her mid-30s, she was diagnosed with a serious eye problem and started losing her vision. She started working with the blind and helped start a program in Vietnam. And Alex is talking to Grace about that part of her story today and how Grace felt called to go and do likewise. I would encourage listeners before listening to Grace or after the podcast interview, flipping to Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and reading that short parable of the Good Samaritan, just to refresh on what that story is all about, what our call to mission, as Christians, as dunker punks, really is. And of course, answer that question I posed earlier of what do you find yourself leaning towards in the typical day? The Good Samaritan or the priest and the white? I worked for several years at Camp Bethel in Fincastle, Virginia, and I remember every single summer the lengths that the counselors, the coordinators, the director went to to try to engage the campers in some of the necessary and boring tasks that had to be done around camp. Things like picking up trash, sweeping up the ark after a meal, taking out the trash in the bathhouses. Those were things that campers were not particularly excited to do, but they had to be done to keep the environment clean, to keep the space safe and healthy for the campers themselves. And so I remember one thing in particular that we put a lot of time into creating, and it was something called the bendo. The bindo was this goofy skit that we put together on Friday at the end of every single camper week. We would have a coordinator come to the front of the ark, which was our cafeteria, uh, and they would speak into the microphone kind of like a narration of this story. And they would get the attention of all of the kids. They would all be drawn in, like wondering what was going on in the middle of their meal on a Friday. And the narrator would talk about how, you know, there was this person 
who was walking along one day, this counselor, and we'd have a counselor jump up and act out what the narrator was saying. Um, we had this counselor walking along one day, and all of a sudden, the counselor spotted on the ground this piece of garbage, right? And the counselors would all gasp really loudly, and oh my gosh, and the person acting out would point at the garbage and they would cry and they would throw a tantrum because they're spotting trash on the ground and the narrator would add in all of these goofy bits about how you know the counselor had been training for this moment for years and years and the counselor would get on the ground and do push-ups and he would do jumping jacks you know like he's preparing for this piece of garbage and the narrator would say you know the counselor walked up to the piece of garbage and in perfect form he does a bendo and he picks up the piece of trash that's on the ground and the counselors and the coordinators would go crazy screaming and cheering and jumping out of their seats and then the counselor would take the trash and slam dunk it into a trash can nearby and everyone would go crazy it was the funniest thing and the kids thought it was the coolest thing ever to be able to do a bendo and we instructed every single unit after the meal to head to a certain part of camp and complete their bendo assignments for the day and you'd see these kids around camp walking around the bathhouses, walking around the spring pond, doing their bendos and laughing like it was the funnest and the silliest thing, picking up all the pieces of trash that they could, doing jumping jacks, just like our counselor in the skit did. And it was just a goofy way for us to try to engage the kids in doing something that was totally necessary and good for them, for the environment, for their entire camp community. But sometimes, you know, it did strike me that we had to go to that extent to get campers, counselors, adults, to get them willing to pick up trash that was laying on the ground in front of them. But, you know, I have found about myself in recent years that I am exactly that way too. If I see you know, a piece of trash in the parking lot of Walmart and I am already sitting in my car about to back out, drive home, put away my groceries, the last thing that I wanna do is get out of my vehicle and pick up that piece of trash and walk it back inside the store to a recycling bin. That is the most inconvenient thing I could possibly think of doing after a long day of working and then getting groceries and then finally being able to head back home. I don't want to have to stop my day to pick up this piece of trash, even though I know picking it up will be better for me, for my fellow community members, uh, for the environment, for the birds that are in the parking lot, I know it will be better if I just bend over and pick up this piece of trash. But doing it 
seems in my brain like the toughest thing ever. And there is uh, a term for that type of behavior, for that mentality, called the tragedy of the commons. And the actual definition of the tragedy of the commons is a situation in which individuals with access to a public resource or a good act in their own interest, and by doing so, they ultimately deplete the resource. That's the Harvard Business School's definition. In the simplest of terms, the tragedy of the commons is the belief that somebody else will take care of the problem. I myself don't need to inconvenience myself this particular day because I believe someone else will come along and do what I just don't feel like doing or what I'm not able to do at the time. That's such a a common mindset for people to have, especially me, when it's something that easy and that small, just bending over to pick something up and put it in the recycling bin. I think to myself, wow, that is such a huge inconvenience to my day. And if picking up a piece of trash registers as inconvenient in our brains, how much tougher is it to start work like what Grace was doing in Vietnam? Grace exemplifies the Good Samaritan in the Book of Luke. Having struggled herself with blindness, Grace saw this opportunity, this gap in community where she could step in and serve the people around her, even though we're talking about a different country, uh, a completely different culture, a different language. Grace had no hesitation in stepping in and fulfilling what was needed, serving the people who were there in such a huge way. And there's one quote from Grace that kind of stuck out to me in the podcast where uh, they were saying to Grace, you know, we waited 20 years for someone like you to struggle with us, to love us, to be with us. Grace's response to Alex was just that she felt called to do likewise. She felt called to do as Christ did for us. What a gift to see a need and to fill it, even though it's a huge inconvenience to to your working life, to your routine, to, you know, the family and the life that you already have established, but to step in and to say, this is what's needed. And so I'm the one to do it. I'm the one to fill this need because I'm here in the moment. And you know, at the end of that parable of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus, he asks the people listening, he asks the expert in the law, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The priest or the Levite who went around the man that they saw hurt in the road or the Samaritan? who wasn't a believer 
in the Jewish God, who was kind of an outcast in Jewish society, the Samaritan who stopped and helped this person. And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy. That is the one who was truly a neighbor. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. I would encourage listeners in any way that you're able to, whether it's something big, like what Grace did with her ministry and her life in Vietnam, uh, helping these people who are struggling with blindness. If you can find a big way in which to serve like Grace, then I would encourage you, if you feel called, to jump into that head first and to do it. But to others who want to help, um, but just aren't able to in big ways, I would say that even the smallest of things uh, can can make you like the Good Samaritan in the story. It could be something as small as picking up that trash bag that's laying in the Walmart parking lot. That sets you apart from everyone else who may pass by that and think someone else will take care of it. You can be the Samaritan that stands apart in the smallest of ways, picking up that piece of trash and saying, no, I know this will better my community. It will better the environment around me. So I can do this easily. My hope for the future, surely Grace's hope for the future, is that people, especially young people, will see the spaces that need someone to serve and they will step in and do likewise. Hey, Dunker Punks, thanks for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is going and doing likewise by sending out words of hope and lists of opportunities for people, especially young people, to get involved. Speaking of getting involved, if you are interested in serving, especially serving abroad, I would encourage you to head to peacecorps.gov. The Peace Corps is currently recruiting people to serve in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And the Peace Corps for Vietnam is officially open and looking for people to serve. This episode was created by the host, myself, Krista Craighead, the audio contributors, Alexander McBride and Grace Mishler, and our editor, Tyler North. Jacob Krause creates our music. Suzanne Lay manages production and communications. Wichita First Church of the Brethren, Long Green Valley Church of the Brethren, Living Stream Church of the Brethren, Warrensburg Church of the Brethren, Beacon Heights Church of the Brethren, Arlington Church of the Brethren, and On Earth Peace all sponsor the show. We want you to be a part of the Dunker Punks podcast. Will you be attending annual conference? We are currently recruiting interviewers for live recordings of annual conference leadership. Email dpp at arlingtoncob.org to join in or recommend a youth or young adult. Can we recruit 20 congregations to sponsor the Dunker Punk podcast? You heard that long list of churches that I just named above who are supporting the Dunker Punks podcast. And there are so many great reasons to support the Dunker Punks. It's important to hear what youth have to say about following Jesus. 
and congregations can support youth by being part of this platform that gives them a voice to speak up. Email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org for more details, including an informational packet about congregational sponsorships to pass along to your church board. Ask your church board to include a $200 budget line for the Dunkerpunks podcast. Together, we can literally value what young people of faith have to say. Is this podcast meaningful to you? Is it inspiring to you? You can get involved. You can give back to the podcast by being a part and sending your comments or your favorite show quotes to dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Engaging with our social media. We are Dunkerpunks Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can share, like, and comment on posts to support the show or tag a friend to personally invite them to check out a favorite episode. You can also create show art inspired by a favorite episode or by your own faith journey, and we would be delighted to share it on all of our social media channels. You can check out our latest episodes and all of our current initiatives and ways to connect and support at linktree slash dunkerpunkspod. You can apply or recommend a young person to be an audio contributor to create your own episode by emailing us, recording whatever is on your heart and happening in your faith journey, and we're currently recruiting interviews for our Seasoned Ministers series, so keep that in mind. Again, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast, and be on the lookout for our next episode posting May 6th. Thanks, Dunkerpunks. Punks.